Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Well, welcome to Resiliency uh, Within, and this is indeed Elaine miller Karras, your host, And I also want to remind our listeners that we're also streaming on Facebook Live on Resiliency Within Facebook page. And I'd like to welcome today's guest, Andrew Bomback, Associate Professor of Medicine at Columbia University Irving Medical Center and the author of Doctor. His essays have appeared in some pretty illustrious um, reviews, Atlantic, Los Angeles Review of Books, McSweeney's, and more. And his new book is entitled Long Days, Short Years, A Cultural History of Modern Parenting. It was published in August of 2022 by MIT Press. So, we're going to talk a little bit about kids. Well, actually, a lot about kids and parenting. Um, my children are grown, and with all of my life experience, I'd have to say, being a parent has been one of the most challenging. It has been joyous, tumultuous, heart wrenching, and more. I've spoken to many parents during the worst part of the pandemic, and they certainly have shared their struggles with me. But the struggles did not necessarily begin then. So Andrew's going to share with us what he learned from interviews with parents, as well as stories of his own experience as a father, the good, the bad, and and I love this, the two-hour bedtime ritual that ended with his oldest son throwing a chapstick at his head. I've asked Andrew to tell us a little bit more about that in just a second. He will explore the anxiety that plagues modern parents and, and offer both a window and a mirror into how 21st century mothers and fathers are trying to enjoy their time with their children because, and I'm going to quote you, Andrew, the days are long, but the years are short. So welcome, 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 Andrew. We're so happy to have you. Well, thank you, Elaine. Great to be here. Well, so as we get started today, is there anything particularly on your mind before we get started with our formal questions? Well, the one thing I will say is that the I, I can't take credit for the expression, the days are long, the years are short. That's, you know, it was fun. I thought that was a really old expression. It was, you know, when, when somebody suggested suggested it as a title for me, I said, oh, yeah, that, I've heard that so many times. And I, I assumed this was like an expression that had been used for decades. And it turns out the first time it actually was uh, put put down, at least in print, was within the last 10 years in a book by Gretchen Rubin. Um, now, I think the sentiment is is much older than that, but she's the one who gets the credit for that expression. Um, but I, then the more I thought about it, I said, well, you know what? It makes sense that that's a modern expression. And that's <laughs> Because I think today's parents deal with that sort of pressure, which that expression gets at in a very unique way. You know, it's like we're stressed out all the time about what we're doing with our kids. And then we like, when we finally get the kids to go to bed and like, it's finally quiet. We look at all these pictures on our phone. And we, we get upset yes, because we're like, true. oh my God, I can't believe like that, 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 that memory that just was like, you know, advertised to me by my, by my iPhone saying like, oh, here's what your kids look like two years ago. Like, it, you know, it's, it, they changed so quickly. And so I, I think it's a very modern parenting dilemma of like, why is this so hard? But why is it going so fast? I'm, I certainly, my, you know, my children are, you know, well into adulthood, 
But it seems when I go back and look at it that it seemed like it was lasting a long time, but it was so short. And then you turn around and, you know, they go, oh, my gosh, they were just six. They were just 10. Oh, my gosh, now they're 30. Um, and that's what it feels like for me as an, as an older adult looking, looking backwards at, the, at my children and as I parent them, parented them. So let's start with some questions about, you know, um, how, when and how did parenting become a verb? Yeah. So um, this to me is a really interesting you know, phenomenon that if you look at the, the, the word parent, it's used much more as a verb than, than, than as a noun currently. And I, I wanted to sort of explore how the usage changed. And the first use of the word parent as a verb is probably about 50, 60 years ago. But the real shift occurred late 70s, 1980s. It starts to take off where people talk about parenting as an action, as a, as a skill, as something that actually should be worked at and mastered um, in a way that wasn't discussed in previous generations. So, you know, the parents of the 50s and 60s and early 70s, being a parent was, was sort of a role. It was something that you were just sort of born to be, something that you did naturally. Once parents morphs from being a noun into a verb, being a parent is something that you actively choose to do, that you actively are working at, and that you actively are trying to improve every day. So it becomes this skill and it becomes mm-hmm. this challenge when it takes on a verb form. And to me, that was a very you know, interesting observation when I looked at just you, the, Google has something called an engram viewer where you can actually see the way words are used. And the parent form of verb, I mean, the parent as a verb basically was a flat line until the mid to late 70s. And then it just shoots up astronomically. Hmm. And now it has superseded the parent form when it's now. That's really fascinating. So I'm, you know, I'm thinking here I am as a woman who came to age in the 70s. And a huge thing was reproductive rights that we had the right to choose. We had birth control available to us so that we didn't necessarily um, have to say, oh, this could happen to us. We're going to be parents no matter what. We don't have a choice in it. Do you think that has something to do with how it started to shift? Because then it was more intentional. Certainly when I became a parent, and my kids are in their, you know, late 30s now. We made an intentional choice when to have our children. And we were lucky enough that we didn't have any problems with infertility to have these two children that came to us. Yeah, I think there's, you know, of course, what you mentioned in terms of reproductive rights coming of age at that around that time, but also this is a time when many women were first entering the the workplace mm-hmm. um, in large in large populations. And, you know, you would think that that shift to the workplace, if anything, should de-stress the job of being a parent because you have all this new stress with the workplace. But it actually added an extra stress because it was saying, well, now you have less time to do the parenting. And, and, and we, we should be very frank right here that when I speak about parenting, I'm pretty much speaking about mothering because... But, you know, mothers have borne the the brunt of parenting um, throughout history, and that hasn't changed even in my even in you know twenty twenty two. It's still the mother's work on you know, and men are trying really hard, I think, to catch up and do their role. But the expectations of parents still lie very heavily on them on on mothers. Yeah. Um, and so when mothers enter the workplace, um, they're they're not 
you know, relieved of their other duties. And in fact, they have less time to do those duties. So it, again, it puts this extra pressure. Now you need to be, do an even better job with that limited amount of time. Better make sure you master the skill of raising your children. Well, and I have to say, I can remember um, being one of those women who did join the workforce when my children were young, that people would talk about at that time. Well, it's not the um, the quality of the time. It's not the quantity. It's the quality of the time. Yeah. And then I would think going, oh, my gosh, but I'm so tired during the <laughs> the time that's supposed to be the quality. Yeah. How is that ever supposed to you know, happen? And there was a time that I personally was lucky enough. I certainly was an advantage that I decided to work part time. And in my experience was I had more quality when I had more quantity. And yeah. that is such a suffering because we know that's not a choice that many women have today. Um making that choice not to work. So I, I don't know if you're just your thoughts about that. Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, uh, the, the, one of the most amazing statistics, which I relay in the book is that actually the quantity of time for working moms today is, is essentially the same amount of time that a stay at home mom in the early seventies would devote on their children. So what I mean by that is hmm, if you look at the amount of time the amount of time a working mom today spends with her kids, it's essentially equal to the amount of time a stay-at-home mom actually spent with her kids in the early 70s. So you actually don't even get that mm. change in quantity. And then, as you mentioned, when you perceive that there's less quantity, you really have to work on maximizing the quality. So, I mean, it's, it's, no, it's no surprise that, you know, being a mom today feels so overwhelming, feels so pressure-laden um, because this idea that you can't, you have to have it all, right? You, you can't um, be able to give up one thing for another is it can be very plaguing. Um, you're right. There are definitely people who have privileges where they can either stay at home or work part-time, but not everybody has that no. privilege or opportunity. And when you don't, or, or if you don't want to, right? So, you know, as my wife often says, like, why do men get to keep their pre-fatherhood selves, but women don't? You know, why is it always expected that if one parent's going to go part-time, it will be the, the mom and not the dad? Um, so, again, I think there have been some, you know, really nice developments in terms of how society is viewing this. First of all, we have, you know, a number of families now that have two moms and two dads. So, it's not just the traditional mom and dad model. But even if you look at... Um, families that are two fathers, um, those two fathers tend to do individually less work than a mom would do in a, in a mother and a mother. Father. Really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so there's still, something about the women that they do yes, more. Yeah. Oh, parenting gosh. to me is still one of the most gender normative um, things we have in society. Uh, so even when you have, uh, you know, a family where there is no mom, um, nobody seems to be taking on that role if there's not a, not a woman around. Well, so that gives, you know, the next question I have for you is that um, you probably could have written an advice book for parents, but that's not what you were trying to do with, with this book. Um, yeah. What was your goal? And is, is it part of it to look at some of these issues that, that there's still this issue that you could have two dads and yet what happens with the mom's roles? Yeah, well, I, I appreciate you saying that I probably could have written an advice book. I did not think I could have written an advice book. In fact, I started this project really from a place where I threw up my hands and said, I'm not doing anything right. I'm, I'm having a lot of problems. 
um, I need to explore why I'm having these problems. So I, I did not feel like I was in any position to give advice. What I really wanted to do is explore why it was so hard. And I thought that if I could figure out why it was so hard for me, I might be able to delineate why it's so hard for so many other parents. And I was having all these conversations with other parents and there were just themes that kept emerging. Um, every, you know, it was so unusual for me to find somebody who wasn't stressed out, who wasn't overwhelmed, who, who basically said like, this is exactly the way I pictured it. And, you know, and, if, and if somebody said that, you know, as soon as they left, people would say, they're not telling the truth. So, <laughs> well, I, I felt that feeling when I can remember when my kids came home, I'm going, okay, now what I do, I took this class about the pregnancy, but then it doesn't come with, the, this child didn't come with instructions. Yeah. And I felt I was a pretty, um, you know, well-read person, but that didn't mean it was easy yeah. at all. So that's right. And, we, and we, we talked about this a little bit before we went on today, which was that, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, the dominant model for families was multi-generational. So, you know, you had a baby and you, you know, you had um, grandparents around who could give you that advice, could give you those instructions and could often do so in a way that likely felt less intimidating than if you're getting those types of instructions now from TikTok videos or Facebook posts or, you know, parenting books where basically, you know, when I read, when I read parenting books or I sort of consume parenting content, whether it's podcasts or blogs, um, I often feel like people are giving me advice that's not necessarily practical for the kids that live in my house. Um, and, and I think a lot of parents feel that way too, where they say like, these are amazing strategies. They'll never work for my kids. Um, and I, it, one of the things I learned as I, went through this process and I read, you know, so many parenting books. I actually joked that I've become addicted to parenting books that even now that I'm done with this, I still read them voraciously. <laughs> it's because in every parenting book, whether it's, you know, 200, 300, 400 pages, there's like one or two nuggets that are so good that you steal them and you say, these will work. But then the rest of it, like the 98, 99% of it may not work for your family. But if you have a, if you have somebody who's actually living with you, who's embedded in your house, you know, a trusted, uh, you know, older relative, whether it's your, your parents or aunts and uncles, but these multi-generational households, they, they were fountains of wisdom. They were huge resources. And, and those completely went away as we shifted towards city-based living and as we shifted towards moving further and further away from, from our parents. And, and it, something has been lost with that. Um, and and, I, and I, I don't think that it's, it's going to be able to be recaptured. But I do think that's part of the reason why new parents find it so overwhelming. It's because they don't have the help, right? And and the, the 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 biggest way to try to survive being a parent these days is to have help. And some people are fortunate enough that they can pay for help, but some people are not. And if you can't pay for help, you need you need a circle of of relatives and friends who can help you. Well, you know, and Andrew, as you're talking, you know, I shared with you that we had. We're very fortunate that my father-in-law lived with us for 30 years at the end of his life. He died when he was 105. My mom lived with us for the last year of her life. Um, but one of the things that was so apparent from both of them is how much they loved my children. And yes, they had much advice to give, some of which I took and some of which I didn't. But the over the, what I'm remembering more than everything, anything is how my children felt loved by them. 
Yeah. And you can't get that love from a book. You can't give, you know, I mean, there's some wonderful nannies and caregivers of children who have much appreciation for children, maybe even love them. But I'm just curious about what you think about what I'm saying about no, just the whole I, I, aspect of love and what that has to do with what we're talking about. I, again, I, I, I'm not equipped to, to give advice, but if somebody asked me like, what, what advice would I give? I would say, find a circle of five or six adults that love your children and you can trust that their love for your children will help you raise them. So whether it's grandparents, aunts or uncles, next door neighbors, um, they know the, a friend's parents. So like, you know, like my, my daughter's best friend's parents, you know, people that you know really do care and love for your children so that you can ask for help when you need it and they will, they will respond because of that love. Um, you know, like I remember our next door neighbor, um, when, when COVID struck my family last spring, like my next door neighbor just like sprung into action. Like, you know, she's like, what do you need to eat? Uh, oh, you know, you're going to miss the sign up for the, for the, for the summer pool. I'm going to go, I'll, I'll sign your whole family up for it. I mean, it was just like, she basically was like, took over the parenting role for our, our family. Cause we were all sort of like stuck inside and, and feeling awful. Um, and that's, you know, I consider her part of our circle. Like I used to send my kids to her house to walk to the bus on days that my wife and I had to go in early to the hospital. So it's just like, but you, you have to think of it. I mean, it's not a very novel thing. I'm basically saying like, it takes a village to raise a child, but, but I think today's parents feel guilty about admitting that to saying, I, I need the help. Like I, I really can't do it by myself. Like the only way I'll be able to survive is if I have that sort of circle around me. Well, and as you're speaking about this too, about your neighbor, I think the other thing that, again, using that old adage, it takes a village, but it's also teaching our children how to be human beings, how to be in relationship with others. That um, I was reading um, some work by Dr. Richard Davidson from the University of Wisconsin, talking about that we actually have a generosity circuit in our brain that when we do generous acts towards others, or someone does a generous act towards us, or we see someone doing a generous act for someone else, that it actually, um, it really does cultivate our well-being as human beings. So if we see little children, your kids seeing your neighbor helping your family out during COVID, it not only helps with parenting, but it does help to develop strong little little people who then learn how to be generous. I mean, oh, I yeah. think that the ramifications of it, I get chills when I think about just that aspect of why um, having help and assistance and love in one's life when you're raising children is so incredibly important. Yeah, kids are so incredibly perceptive. They pick up on things so much more than we give them credit for. Um, and, you know, like we often say, like, do as I say, not as I do. Kids are the kids basically know how, how hollow that statement is. And kids will do as you do, not as you say. So, and they will do as others do. They will, so you're right. If, if be, surrounding them with good people is basically setting templates because they're watching them and saying, well, this is how, this is how she does it. This is how he does it. And I like the way it feels when I'm around that person. I'm going to, yes. I'm going to try to emulate, emulate what they're doing. Exactly. So, you know, I kind of want to um, see if we can go into another area. I'm really interested. Here you are, um, a, a male. Uh, a father who's decided to write this book um, for parents about really kind of looking at some themes, some ideas. So 
you know, what was it about? Um, can you talk a little bit about the representations of maternal versus paternal responsibilities and how they've evolved in in popular culture? Yeah, and and how you're trying to break that by what you're saying and by even writing this book. I'm going to say that to you. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I I do think so. It's unusual for men to write parenting books uh, unless they're like humorous books, like dad jokes and things like that. And I really wanted to tackle this field similar to the way I tackled medicine in my previous book, which was about doctors. And the idea was when I when I wrote about doctors, I was sort of in like a mid career crisis, and I was trying to figure out like, why am I doing this? Can I, can I do it better? And writing about it and really researching the, the field of medicine helped me as a doctor. And so that was that same motivation that led me to doing, to doing a book on parenting. I, I, as I said earlier, I felt like I was struggling. I, I wasn't getting what I thought I should be getting out of parenting. And I wanted to dive deep into the field to figure out, is this me alone? Or is this something that everybody's dealing with? I learned it was something that everybody was dealing with, but I do feel like I, improved my parenting just by understanding how different parenting is than what I thought it was. And better understanding parenting was a huge part of that. But one of the things I learned as I was doing this deep dive is that it's it's a different task for, for men than, than women and, and different expectations and different responsibilities. And I thought as I was trying to write this up, I, I'm not, I, there are huge books that are devoted specifically to what moms do versus what dads do and the unfair expectations of moms. And they come out all the time. And there's, you know, great books that I could recommend. But I thought it would be interesting just because I knew I wouldn't have a ton of space to do it. I wanted to explore it in in pop culture specifically, because I was reading a lot of books. These were actually mostly novels about motherhood. And they were just sort of blowing my mind in terms of how they were approaching the the stress and anxiety and, and abject horror of being a mom today. And I, I, and I, and I, what was amazing to me was that they were, they were just coming out one after another, after another. And it made me sort of realize like art right now and content creation by, by, by women who really want to give a genuine expression about what it feels like a mom is just this, it's just an amazing time for people to, to, to hear it. it. There's an honesty that's percolating through these accounts that I think is just so exceptional. You don't really get that in, in content or art created about parenting by men. Um, men, huh. either they're not involved to the same degree, they don't have the same struggles, or they just don't feel like they want to be as transparent as some of the female art well, do you, uh, do you creators th- are. Do you think it has to do, though, with the incredible expectations that we that are placed upon women to fulfill this role, this this idealized role of what it means to be a mother? I do. I, I, I do think it starts with the fact that their task is much harder The the as, as I said, like the the overwhelming press and, uh, pressure and stress on these on these moms, it, you you you, can, you feel it viscerally when you're reading when you're reading these books or or watching these TV shows or watching these films. You know, it, you you can just feel the pressure. And I don't think men are 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 given that same pressure. And I think they are excused from it. And when a man a man is involved in parenting, it's sort of like, oh, isn't that nice that he's doing it? Whereas when a woman does it, it's like, of course, that's her job. So there is these, there's a huge different, you know, expectation. And one of the books that I discussed, which I really like, um, is the the Norwegian books called My Struggle Series by Carlo V. Knausgaard. And he's become, because his wife becomes hospitalized, um, he becomes the dominant parent for the, for the family. And you can sort of feel the pressure that he's perceiving. 
but it's still a much slighter pressure than I think most moms feel. Like he's, you know, like the the the, the daycare workers get like let it slide when he shows up late, and you know, like he's allowed to just cook hot dogs for dinner for like nights in a row. Like when 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 mothers have these same <laughs> when mothers have these same uh, you know experiences, they don't get the same leeway. So even when it, he's thrust into being the dominant parent, it's still a very different version. It's not yeah. it's not a horror story the way some of these, um, you know new new books and movies and tv shows about moms portray motherhood did you look at at different uh, ways that um people experience the role of mater- of father and mother across different cultures I, I i i did not i mean this is definitely an american book and i think that would have been a really interesting way to do it um uh but i, I am speaking specifically about the american experience in in my book and i mean the one thing that i do contrast it with is that you know, there, there's a whole bunch of um, content put out there in books and blogs about what how the Europeans do it better. Um, and the way they the way they specifically might be doing it better is that they 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 relieve the parents of a lot of of a lot of work, and they and parents basically set stricter boundaries and and have have stricter rules. I mean, the the the, the best known example of this is the book called Bringing Up Bebe, which is about a a mother who for, for She's an American who, for work reasons, is relocated to France. And she's sort of looking around at these French parents and just being like, why are their kids so well behaved? <laughs> like, what is the secret? And she just basically looks into how French parents raise their kids and, like, get them to eat, you know, eat interesting foods and follow, you know, schedules well and be flexible, all the things that we wish our kids would do. But, you know, to go back to your question, like, I think that is a really interesting question. Like, how is each culture dealing with it differently. And, and my book is specifically about issues that Americans are facing. Well, and I think what's, but to me, what's interesting about that too, I, I was familiar with a German family and she had something like two years off of work after she had her baby. Oh yeah. And, and she, and it was, and she got paid. Yeah. And we just, you know, our social policy in America does, well, we have a little bit of support, but not necessarily what you really oh. need when you become a new parent. But I think that's what's so interesting about you bringing some of these themes, you know, to the forefront, because, you know, I, I'm a big believer that when we start looking at certain subjects in another way, we sometimes think about social policy that we may need to think about in order to try to parent our children in ways that um, help them to cultivate their greater well-being, which means how do we support parents on multi-levels? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, that safety net that parents need, it's just not there. Um, And whether it's in terms, you know, in terms of maternity leave, whether it's in in terms of uh, childcare, in terms of healthcare, um, that definitely, that lack of a safety net uh, clearly adds to the pressure that parents today are facing. And I mean, I, th- I, I think the fact that we recognize that, and I think more and more people recognize that now um, is the first step, but obviously okay. it would be great if we had some policy change that would actually work to actually enact some version of a safety net for parents. Yeah. Well, so, and especially when we're talking about things, um, subjects like adverse childhood experiences and how that impacts children as they grow and ha- through life. But, oh my goodness, it's 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 almost our halftime. Yeah. That's gone by very fast, Andrew. So I am here with Andrew um, 
Bob Backen, we are talking about his new book called Long Day, Short Years, A Cultural History of Modern Parenting. And we have more to talk about. So we're going to take a short break. We're going to hear a little bit about the Trauma Resource Institute. And we will be back in just a couple of minutes and we will continue this lively conversation. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine miller Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Elaine miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine Miller-Karis. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm here with Andrew Bombeck. We have had an interesting first half of our conversation. He has written a book called Long Day, Short Years, A Cultural History of Modern Parenting. And we're going to continue our conversation. Um, and so, Andrew, is there anything on your mind as we've, we've come back from break? Um, no, I mean, we've had such a great conversation. I mean, the one thing that was on my mind was that the break came up so fast. And I was <laughs> telling you that that sort of happens when you when you start talking about parenting. It's just there's no shortage of material and and it's sort of, you know, 
you, you start talking about one thing and all of a sudden, like 30 minutes later, you just, you haven't stopped talking. So, well, um, there we go. Very important subject for, yeah. for all of us. So I have some question, kind of the, the creative nature. Um, in your book, you talk about the portrayals of parenting in popular culture. What movies or TV shows do you think got it right? And which ones got it wrong? Let's talk a little <laughs> bit about that. Uh, well, it's much easier to start with what gets it wrong because I, 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 I see this a lot. So, I mean, my biggest pet peeve is the some of the disney tv shows and disney movies mostly the live action ones because these parents sort of exist in a world that just does not really have any semblance of reality so you know like if you take like a typical disney tv show or disney movie um like both parents work and yet they're able to take the kids to school and get to work at like 9 30 or 10 o'clock and then be home to pick them up at 2 30 or 3 o'clock so like they have these <laughs> super truncated work days the house is always like immaculately spotless, even though there doesn't appear to be anybody who's helping with cleaning. The like the the mom typically is the only one who's shown doing any cleaning, and yet the house looks like it's been serviced by like a cleaning company every day. Um, yes, and like these and these houses are so big and so spacious. So uh, yeah, I, I I mean I I always have problems watching those. I mean they're they're definitely fun, and I appreciate the lessons they're trying to teach our kids. But if you're a, if you're a parent trying to like feel like you're being seen that's 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 difficult um, <laughs> so which so which one do you which one's which, got it right which then? one's got it right well i mean I, for a while I mean, right now this is a very unpopular show because the 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 star of it louis ck ended up um having a bunch of personal issues but i mean there was a time when his show i felt was a very accurate representation of parenting and that he he really focused on some of the the boring parts of parenting like you, you know he would have like you know, shows dedicated to like going to PTA meetings and not having anything to say to the other parents or um, trying to find a clean public bathroom for your daughter out in like in the middle of New York City. So, I mean, the show, unfortunately, um, has lost its way because of the, the creator's own issues. So it's it's now not really considered something that people should go back to, to, to look at. But at the time, it was really, I thought, a very accurate representation. Um, you know, I, I think... The movie um, Tully is a really interesting movie in that um, it, it shows sort of the, the, the sort of derangement that a new mom can feel. Um, and it also shows some of the dynamics of having a child with special needs and then one of the children in the, in the, in the episode. Um, it gets really, gets really into like the different expectations and dynamics between moms and dads. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give away a little bit of a spoiler here, but like, at the end of the movie, sort of the happy ending is that the father helps the mom make lunches for the next day. And it's like, obviously, it's a very symbolic scene, but it just shows like how even the smallest things can go a long way when you're sort of looking for a life raft when you're parenting. And then I think like a lot of a lot of the books that I talk about, I, I, I go through it, you know, a, a litany of new novels and that, that explore motherhood. And, you know, if you just look at the plot synopses, they actually don't don't have any resemblance to reality. Like there's, an, for example, there's um, a book called uh, Night Bitch, which is about uh, a woman who feels like she's becoming like a rabid dog at night. So like that sounds like completely speculative fiction and not have any semblance to reality. But the actual scenes of the book, like when she takes her kid to the playground and feels the judgmental eyes of the other moms when she, when her kid is misbehaving in, you know, in, in a public restaurant, um, when she 
when she feels, uh, you know, embarrassed about having to pump at work and, 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 and eventually leaves the job because she doesn't feel support. Like there's a lot of really good reality scenes in these books. And um, despite the sort of speculative, uh, you know, feel of the, of the novel overall. So I, I think there's right now it's great because there's a lot of really good gritty art being produced, particularly by women for women consumers, but men like me, we're allowed to consume them as well and, and learn about it. <laughs> men like you. So so what would you like? I mean, I, I don't know if this is kind of an odd question, but what would you like men to be like as fathers? I mean, you haven't, you know, some ideas that have come out of your writing. You think, hey, guys, we got to make more sandwiches at the end of the day. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, uh, <laughs> I mean, the truth of the matter is like making lunches is the least of it. Like that's actually very easy. We should be able to do that. I think, I mean, I think men should obviously be more involved um, in, 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 in the logistics of raising kids, you know, making lunches, you know, organizing play dates, uh, doing carpools, et cetera. But also, you know, the, and this, I will call myself out on the emotional component of, of being a parent, um, you know, basically being present, making sure you're modeling the behaviors for your, for your kids. Um, you know, one of the things you can model if you're a man uh, in a traditional family is how to support other people, right? So if you're shirking responsibilities, you've modeled that, unfortunately. If uh, On the other hand, you're trying really hard to always be present, to always be helping, to always be a, a crucial part of the family and basically saying, like, this family, there are two captains, right? Like, we, we, we both do the, do, do the heavy work. I think that, that will help. But a lot of it's going to come from a societal shift as well, where society basically says, like, we expect more of men. We expect more of fathers to, to be doing that sort of emotional lifting. Um, can you let us know, like, if, if, when, if someone picks up your book, are they going to get some of these ideas that you're talking about right now? What, you know, um, you know, if probably, you're dead- <laughs> probably not. I mean, so if you pick up the book, what you really, the, the, the biggest thing you're going to see is, how a parent in, you know, a parent today is very different from a parent 50 years ago. And you're going to see why that change has occurred. You're going to see, you know, the economic changes that have led to a shift in how parents act, the, uh, the, 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 the information age and social media, how that has warped what parents are doing. Um, but I actually deliberately stayed a, away from these sort of like broad calls to action um, because, um, A, I don't feel like I'm in a position where I can make those broad calls to action. And B, I feel like those, those, those types of calls generally come out hollow. You have to just do it, right? You have to do the work. So, I mean, the one thing I would say, like, if you read my book, you will see a father who's enmeshed in parenting. You will see a father who is like basically absorbed with parenting. Like I talk about how, like, I read all these parenting books, but also how these parenting books are really not geared towards fathers. Like, the, the, they're all they're all geared towards moms and that's that's a problem um so at least you know so i try to some degree i'm sort of setting the example on the page about how invested i am in raising my kids well and so that kind of you know maybe you can elaborate a little bit more about what are some of the most notable parenting trends in the past century and are there anything that are there things that you can predict about what um future parenting tre- trends might be yeah well, I think one of the biggest parenting trends of the last half century is the fact that parents are are basically encouraged not to trust their own instincts. 
So mm-hmm. if you look at parenting books, for example, the parenting books of 50, 60 years ago, and the best example would be Dr. Spock, basically are saying like, trust yourself. You have really good instincts. I'm going to give you a couple of little pointers, but you are a good parent by nature. The parenting books today basically begin with the idea of like, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> if you picked up this book, it's because you're in crisis and you need help. So basically, don't do anything that you naturally would do and follow these advice step by step. Here's a script for you to follow. Some of these books are written by people who are from like outside fields, you know, from neurobiology, from behavioral economics, from biostatisticians, you know, basically, sorry, basically um, telling you we're going to guide and script out your parenting experience because you cannot be trusted to do this on your own. Um, And I think that's a really big shift because it puts a tremendous amount of stress on parents. Well, and it puts stress on parents in that they're going to think that they're always doing something right, wrong rather, because if you script something, I haven't found children to always be predictable in terms of their responses to whatever I might read and sug- or someone might suggest and go, well, if I, my kid did this, you can get your kids to eat broccoli. Well, I would try the same thing and my kids still didn't eat broccoli. So then you're going, well, what's, you, I think it, with parenting, there's this kind of defaults like times Roman, right? That there must be something wrong with me, that this is not happening for me because maybe it happens with others. I don't know if you can comment on that. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think it can be a very, sorry, I'm, I'm, I am a doctor by trade, by trade and my, and it's my secretary's gone, so they keep patching a call through, so I'm going to try to hopefully not uh, have to, so I apologize if you're hearing some outside noise. Yes. Um, but uh, no, I think it can, the, the whole, I mean, one of the biggest concerns about being a parent is how isolating it can feel. Um, and that's, you know, going back to what we talked about with community and how important community is. Um the idea that you are not alone. And and so to even circle back to that question, like, well, what is someone going to get when they pick up, pick up your book? I mean, I do think there is some benefit in just sort of knowing how hard the job has become. Because by doing that, you say like, well, this this isn't just me. Like the whole, the whole field has moved. Like now, like now you can view yourself as one of a group of, you know, 21st century parents who are struggling with the same you know, cultural expectations, same, you know, social expectations, the same pressures. Um, you know, one of the other things that, uh, you know, when you ask, like, what are some of the biggest trends? Parent shaming is is a, is, a, is not like a complete modern phenomenon. I mean, I think pe- parents have been shamed forever. You know, I, there's a joke that I relay in the book. It's not my own joke, but it was like the first parent shaming basically happened after like, Adam and Eve, like whoever was the second couple, Adam and Eve could tell them like, oh, this is how you do it, you know? So that parent shaming has been going on forever, but for the for the most part, parent shaming has always sort of been within the house usually. Like usually it's like, it was like a vertical model where like the in-laws would sort of tell you, oh, you know, you could do this better. And often it was done out of love, not, not out of shaming. Now there's like parent shaming all over the place. You know, you can't go on Facebook without feeling a little bit of parent shaming when you just look at other people's feeds saying like, oh, look how great, look how great this vacation was, or look how amazing this birthday party was. If you're a parent who's having a difficult time and you're feeling isolated and you go on social media and you see all these other parents posting content that's very carefully curated, I should add, that you know other parents are being 
very careful when they put stuff on Facebook to make it seem like everything's perfect. That can really bring you down as a parent. Well, I'm just wondering about your your um, comments about social media. I talk to many parents. Parents are very concerned about social media. Um, I can just see with my own granddaughter, her love for her iPad, which my, which my daughter and son-in-law are very kind of, they're strict about how often she can watch it. But I mean, she's drawn to that like a magnet. And she has a very enriched life with, you know, piano lessons and soccer and, and just being like reading books, but yet that iPad, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. I don't know. And you've got three, so I can't even imagine what having no, three No, screens, like. I mean, yes, screens, screens are, are tough. Screens are definitely a modern phenomenon. And I mean, for good and for bad, I mean, to some degree, screens are an electronic babysitter when you need it uh, at an extreme, but screens have become really a modern conundrum for parents. And I think as with all sort of potential ills, you have to figure out like, how am I going to teach my children respect and proper usage of these screens? Like you can't basically say, oh, well, I'm not going to have them on screens. I'm not, because then they're going to basically be like growing up, like, you know, outside of the, of the culture. But I think what you can do is try to model for them appropriate use of screens. So, you know, my friend who's a pediatrician, she basically says like kids watch how you use screens and you so you need to constantly be monitoring how you yourself use screens like you know so like you if you for example like if you get on an elevator everybody just pulls out their phone because they're like what am I going to do for the next five floors and she's like well what 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 is that showing your child like instead of doing that like bend down and ask your child like hey like let's play an elevator game or hey. Like what, what, like, like what, what, what happened at school today? Um, and the more you can model, you know, appropriate screen behavior, the better. So, you know, like in my family, for example, like we, we have like a timer on the screen just because we want to show them like, yes, you can use it, but you need to be able to get off. Um, we also have like dedicated reading time where we're just like, nobody's going to be on a screen. Everybody's going to be in a book or a magazine or, 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 you know, something that's non-electronic. So that sort of dedicated effort is is crucial. I think it is. I mean, we have Alexa is the one who we put the Alexa on. Alexa lets us know when time's up, right? Uh, but, I don't, but I don't think we're as good with the parents and with myself personally than we are trying to model for her. So I think this is going to be something I'm going to take back to our family. Yeah. Um, so let me ask you um, a, a couple other, I'm going to circle back to something you mentioned earlier. And how have outside disciplines such as neuroscience behavioral economics and biostatistics state claims in the parenting space. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I think there's a big draw to neuroscience and what can we do that's based on evidence, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, the fact that you're seeing best-selling parenting advice books written by really non-conventional sources of expertise for parenting, right? So like I make a joke in the book that like if you told my mom who raised four boys, like, Oh, like if you really want to know how to discipline these kids, you got to read like game theory. <laughs> you need to master game theory. She'd be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but I think, you know, what it says is that people are desperate for expertise and they are actually desperate for expertise that comes with a brand and a stamp. And, and, and at the same time, it's also saying that parents and prior parents are being discounted as experts. And they're saying, you know, we we don't want to read parenting advice from, you know, just some average 
mom or dad or just from 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 a grandmother or or, or an aunt or an uncle who who you know helped raise kids. We want the best information for our kids, and 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 this idea that like oh if it comes with a PhD, um, it has to be right. Um, can can really take away some of the autonomy from parents. Um, now, some of the some of the material in these books are really important. Like I think um, the neuroscience about how our brains work, and specifically how we, you know, can fall into like a frontal brain overdrive, can be really helpful for parents to sort of process some of their own reactions to their kids and to try to, you know, some degree, bring it down to a child's level. Like I relay an example and, and about how I used, a, you know, a technique from the whole brain child to sort of explain to my son why it didn't make sense for him to like go crazy throwing his dirty laundry around the room because he didn't have a clean pair of pants that he wanted and that it would be much better if we just went downstairs and did the laundry together. So, I mean, there are some things there, but you could take that whole, I mean, I could have had that exact same encounter without reading the whole brain child, right? If someone said, you know, if someone said, you know, when my kids were having tantrums, I would get down on their level. I would explain to them, let's come up with what, what you really need. Let's come up with what is a good solution for that problem and let's do it together and, and take a, a tantrum into a productive behavior. You don't need neurobiology for that. And so I think sometimes the packaging is what's selling these advice books. It's like, well, yeah, like, uh, you know, this, this, this uh, big statistical study said you don't need to sleep train. So don't don't feel bad about letting your your kids co sleep with you, right? So, yeah, you can feel better about doing something if you have a stamp of approval, because again, one of the dominant themes for parents is that we're being told you don't have it, you don't have it naturally, like your your instincts are wrong. So if you get some sort of validation from an external source, it's sort of what you're what you're searching for when you pick up an advice book. I think you're right, and and but then I think that's also can be crazy making. Because then there can be so many different, you know, people and, and different ideas coming at you. You don't know what to do and you want the best for your kid. Right. And and I, I love what you said about, you know, also trusting your gut about some things that you kind of know, well, you know, for this child, I had two very different ch- children. One child needed a certain kind of rocking that the other ch- child needed to be held in, in, of course. But I'm just saying, you know, one child can be, become overstimulated overstimulated by certain things in the environment and the other child, it could calm them down. So when you start observing your children and really tracking and reading them, you sometimes then know how to respond to each one. And now you've got three kids. Are they all the same? Do they all need the same things? Mm-hmm. Andrew, what's the answer to that? <laughs> um, the answer is potentially in the last part of the book. So the last part of the book, I do have one, I do have one chapter where I delve a little bit into advice, right? Just like, Dip my my toe into the. Oh water right, it's okay light. that it's okay that you dipped in. Go ahead, um, I want to and, hear what you did. And and I basically talk about what you just said, which is there there's a there's a there's a movement in medicine called precision medicine or personalized medicine, which is basically saying we have enough data now as as uh, as a medical field that we should be able to tailor a regimen to our specific patient. That every patient should get a a, a specific therapy plan based on all the data we can get, whether that data is from their lab work, their imaging work, their genetics. Um, 
you can do something similar as a parent. There are so many resources out there right now for parents, whether it's in the form of books like mine or other books, whether it's in podcasts, whether it's in TV shows, um, social media, for, you know, for, for better or for worse. But there's so much information and resources available that rather than be overwhelmed by that huge abundance of resource, get to know your kids as well as you can, what we call a medicine phenotyping where you come up with the, the best description of who the patient is here, the more you can understand who your kids are and how unique they are and how different they are from each other, you can actually use these resources appropriately and tell them to that specific kid. So, you know, with my three small kids, bedtimes were completely different for the 11-year-old, the 8-year-old, and the 5-year-old. The 11-year-old, you know, when she was younger, she you put on a, a CD and she would just fall asleep and you walk out of the room, it was super easy. The eight-year-old, for such a long time, you know, he was just out of control, running around, going crazy. And, you know, he just basically needed to just get it out of his system before he could go down. And now the five-year-old, he, he, he likes to listen to guided meditations. You know, it's like, you know, so it's like if you could put, if, he, if you could just get him to sit, lay down and listen to a guided meditation, he just drifts off to sleep. So everybody just needed a little bit of a different, a different approach. And I think that's, that's why... Again, parenting resources can be overwhelming if you think like, oh, this has to work for my kid. It doesn't. Not every resource is appropriate for your kid. Your job as a parent, if you're going to go to these resources, is to know your kids well enough that you can say, this specific part will work for my kid and the rest I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out. Andrew, I cannot believe the time has gone by so fast. We just have a few minutes left. Um, you've given us some really important things to think about. So I'm just wondering if there's any parting thought that you th um, think is important to um, to leave our listeners besides what you just said, which I think is really important to pay attention to. Well, other than I would love for all your listeners to read the book. And as I said, I'm not so sure if we were on break when I said this, but you know, it's, the book's available in all books, in most bookstores and um, everywhere you buy books online, you can get it. And of course, you can always get it from your, your local public library. Um, and I would love to interact with your listeners. But, you know, what am I hoping somebody gets when they pick up the book is I, I just hope that when you read the book, you get a, a sensation of like, this is what it's like to be a parent today. If you're if you are a parent, I think you'll feel seen. If you know a parent, it will help you understand what their lives are like. If you're a former parent, who has interaction with current parents, it will actually, I think, give you a better chance to interact with them and approach them on their level. To me, it's sort of like a guide to what it is like to be a parent, not a guide to how to be a parent, but just what it feels like to be a parent. So, Andrew, also for someone like me who's a grandparent, would it be something would be a worthwhile read for me as well? I imagine it would be. I I, I would, I would, <laughs> I would, I would, rec I could recommend it to anyone, whether you're a former parent, a current parent, or a future parent. I think there's there's a lot to learn throughout the book. And so I'd love for you to say the name of your book in your own words so that everybody can hear it come from you. Okay. It's called Long Days, Short Years, A Cultural History of Modern Parenting. As we mentioned, it's from MIT Press. What we didn't mention is that's a very short book. So one thing, parents are very busy. Everybody's busy. So it's actually a pretty short book. Um, and I think everybody will will find something in it that uh, that they can they can use. So I would like to say, Andrew, thank you so much for being on the show. And listeners, uh, I think that Andrew has given us some really wonderful examples. If you're struggling with parenting, what else may be true? I'm going to say, trust your gut. And if you're not certain, 
you know, trust someone in, you know, reach out to someone in your friendship network who you can at least talk to about it. Because sometimes I know that when I reached out to my dearest best friend, my comadre of many years, Pamela Page, who died a few years back, it somehow made things a little bit easier. The burden wasn't so hard to carry because I could talk to another mom who kind of got it. So remember what else is true in your life. And again, we will see you next week. This is Elaine miller Karras signing out for Resiliency Within. And again, Andrew, thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. 